you know, we've been going through the minor prophets, if you will. There's 12 different books. We've just kind of started this. We went through Jonah. Now we're going to go through Nahum. And then there's, you know, more after that that we will go through, but we're in Nahum. And, and so most of you are like, who? <laughs> Nahum, <laughs> if you will. But uh, all in all, there's so much to learn about the, the, the goodness and ultimately the character of our God throughout, especially the Old Testament, because this shows his working with his people. And so, while I didn't do this for Jonah, I'm going to do it for Nahum. Nahum actually means comfort. It's, it's a biblical word. Jonah, believe it or not, means dove. So you can kind of imagine, like, what's, what did the Holy Spirit come down as? And, and how was Jonah used in that story? And how, how does God ultimately use the Holy Spirit in that form of a dove, in a sense, that ultimately does that. But either way, that, that was a, a sermon series ago, so we're not going to go there. As much as Chris wants to, we're not going to do it. It's just how that works. And so Nahum means comfort, but it also can mean vengeance. There is parts of God that we need to know and to understand and, and certainly to, to deal with in, in light of our lives in this world. And so you're going to see and hear about jealousy a little bit. You're going to hear about wrath a little bit. You know, some of these things nobody wants to talk about, which I can't necessarily blame you, but at the same time, it, it is important because that is a part of our God and who he is. And there is certainly a punishment for sin and, and ultimately wickedness for those who turn away from him and go to their own ways. And so we know by the gospel, and there's lots of gospel tones in this too, just the same as there are. So we're always going to hit on those because... We need to know that God has always worked on repentance and faith, okay? And even now, through his son Jesus, we, we still turn from our own ways to follow Christ's ways. And then also, of course, that aspect of, you know, uh, belief and the faith that's required. But God gives us that. And through situations and circumstances in our life, and we'll hit on that again, too, and especially as you saw in Jonah, you know, the, the orchestrating of the storm and the plant and the worm, and scorching wind and whatnot, that even though it may seem bad, it's, it's still good. So God is good all of the time, and, and, but there is this aspect that we need to know and understand in regards to his, his vengeance, if you will. And so Nahum is, in a sense, kind of the, the, the sequel to Jonah. It's a hundred years more down the road, and we'll find out. So, dear Heavenly Father, again, as always, thank you for bringing us together this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy on our lives. The greatest miracle still is the fact that you save sinners, that you are the God of salvation, and that this isn't it. And indeed, Lord, I know that you love us, so continue to use this time. Use me edify us, sanctify us. Teach us how good you are and show us uh, how to walk more effectively in this life now in eager anticipation for the future that is with you permanently and eternally. So, Lord Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, Nahum, chapter 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath 
for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Quite a first chapter, huh? <coughs> Excuse me. So, I can from hopefully you have Bibles in front of you. If not, you know certainly the the sheets that I've given you. It, it is it is not nearly as nice in my sheets as it is poetically demonstrated in in Scripture itself as it's laid out. And so, this is an oracle. Oracles are a divine revelation, in essence, spoken through a, a prophet, priest, or king. Something to that, just to start this off in, in the first verse. Um, and it's an oracle concerning Nineveh, which Nineveh was that city that we learned about, Jonah, that, you know, eventually does become the Assyrian capital, especially at this time. And then this is the book of that vision that Nahum had. And Elkosh, we're not entirely sure where, where it is, but it's somewhere close in that vicinity. They kind of feel it's somewhere around Galilee. It really doesn't change the, the tempo of the letter in the slightest, depending on where Nahum's from, other than he was a witness in that area. And so some historical fact and some background. This letter was written between 663 B.C., which is when Thebes fell, the Egyptian great city of Thebes, and somewhere between 612 B.C., which is when Assyria falls, or Nineveh falls. So you've got this book written somewhere between the destruction of two different cities from two different nations at that time. And so we go into the book now, because that's kind of all the background I, I feel that we, we need on this in this specific moment. There's certainly a lot more head knowledge that we can have, but we need, we need solid application. And remember, God is in control. 
And the creator is always in control. And we need to rest on that. But we also need to be challenged ourselves a little bit in the fact that God is in control. And when, quote, unquote, bad things may or may not happen, there's always this heart question. You know, you think about the book of Job in a sense. Like, what did you do, Job? Or is this the unfortunate effect of, of sin that's around you and whatnot, too? And so, you know, the Lord does discipline. It's written in the Old Testament that there is that. Sometimes, especially as you see in Jonah, too, Jonah was running away. So God sent a storm to keep him on track in that regard. So we see that. But this first part, and understanding this, the, the first point in, in the first three and a half verses here, is that God is great in power. And this displays God's character, of what we're, we're looking for in this. And everything else kind of makes sense a little more after understanding this part about God in the first part. So the Lord is jealous and avenging. Jealous, kano is the word. And, and it does literally mean angry or jealous. But the statement that God is, is jealous in a sense, as if he's envious or something like that, does not attribute to any type of selfish motivation behind God. This jealousy that we need to understand, especially in the Greek word for, for kano here, is that it expresses God's intense, intense, because again, like burning, angry, intense devotion and loyalty to those who are his own. You can read many times in the Old Testament, and especially uh, in Exodus, that God is a jealous God. You've read in the Ten Commandments, you know, the Lord your God is a jealous God. But a lot of times I think we think jealous as he's, he's envious of you, as if there's something that you have that he doesn't have. And that's, that's never the case, that God would be jealous of you that way. But it's because of his great love and, and his care for you, and his devotion and his covenant commitment, because this is all kind of in that famous Exodus chapter 34 moment where God describes himself to Israel, to Moses, especially after Israel had just like turned away from God and built a golden calf to worship rather than God in itself. But he's still graceful, he's still merciful, he's still slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity, but who by no means will clear the guilty. And so we're going to see this too in a minute. So God is ultimately jealous for you because he loves you. He's got this intense passion and devotion and loyalty for you. And so that's, that's really where you need to go with, with jealous, instead of thinking that I have something that, that God wants. No, it's, it's, it's never about that. Like, he is the great provider. He is sovereign over everything. Praise the Lord for this beautiful day. Like, praise the Lord that we woke up this morning. We're not promised. There's so many things that we could be praising the Lord over, but a lot of times we're too big, if you will. Make it about ourselves. Like, I've done this, I do that, you know. Uh, very, very simply, like in this whole backpack thing, is it because of me and, and my awesomeness that we decided to do that? Or is it because of the glory of God that ultimately, you know, we want to do these things, not have to do these things? And so God needs definitely way more glory and respect than, than he's getting in this world today, by far. And so... Also in this, God will avenge you by taking revenge on those who oppress his beloved. 
in a little bit in the next point, I'm going to give you a contrast between Egypt, when God was working with Egypt there in the time of Moses, and then Jonah as well, how God was working with Jonah. With one of them, you can see that there is revenge. There is vengeance in there. With the other, though, there isn't that, that revenge in that sense because God is good, but he's still guiding and directing at this time. So you, the Lord is jealous, meaning he, he, he's got a strong devotion and a loyalty for you. He avenges you because if someone's oppressing his people, he's really not happy about that. Yeah, I can't blame him. You know, we see that, and especially throughout redemptive history, all the stories of things that happened to Israel and being taken over by Assyria, being taken over by Babylon, being kicked out of their land. You know, so much happened to Israel in that. So you see that too. And then the Lord takes vengeance. Like, you see the, the rest of, of verse 2? The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. That's really just the Lord is avenging and wrathful, and then you can see it's against his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. So hopefully none of us are enemies of God anymore. But understand that this is certainly a big deal in today in this world because sin makes it all about ourselves. So we are naturally against God. When you defame people that are God's, you're in essence defaming God, just the same as defaming those people, because God created them. And they are worthy of dignity and respect, just like he is. So you see that God's adversaries and enemies are those who are against his people in creation. And then in verse 3 here, this is just like that Exodus 34, 6 and 7, except it only you know contains a couple of verses. The Lord's slow to anger, he's great in power, will clear the guilty. So, slow to anger. All of these things are good attributes and good character of God. You know, the slow to anger. Like, how many times should he realistically have wiped out Israel for doing foolish things? For worshiping a golden calf in the instance of when God said this, or when they turned from him, or they complained about the manna, or, you know, there's, there's so many things that Israel... And you still see that in human beings and people today. So these are the important characteristics of God that will make more sense of this entire story. So remember that the jealousy, the, the fierce burning love for you, for his covenant commitment, that steadfast love, um, the, the avenging nature of him, the, the slow to anger. Because again, remember, Jonah was written 786 to 46, so about 100 before this book that we're reading today. So there's there's a lot. And, and the Lord led them to repentance in Jonah. But now the Lord's like, your wickedness is enough. The world has had enough of your wickedness. And also just to throw this in there in this moment too, all superpowers throughout history God has, has ended because of their wickedness. You, you think about Babylon, you think about Assyria, you think about Rome, you think about that. It's a lot of arrogance, and, and it's a little dangerous even to say, and I don't want to you know, alliterate it to today because it's kind of allegory, but if, if we are a superpower in a sense, we should watch out for our arrogance. We should always watch out for that because that's why God has taken all of these people down in the course of time and, and his redemptive history, if you will. But... The reason God's great in power is because he can do anything, right? And so these next two points follow along with.
at that. Point two, control over nature and everything else. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. So when I see whirlwind, I think of Exodus. When I see storm, I think of Jonah. Those are just two things that we've done. If you know the story of Exodus, as they were going out, uh, God followed them in whirlwinds and, and fire. And, you know, he, he lit up the night sky, you know, with that fire and then, you know, followed them by the day too. And so, and then the storm, we just read all about that in Jonah too, uh, the last few weeks ago, that God certainly created that storm. But God uses nature to get our attention again. Make no mistake about that. And the fact that he can control all of this. And so you see the resemblance of clouds because when dealing with an oracle, it, it has a lot to do with poetry, which has a lot of metaphors in it. And that's exactly what this is too. Tons of metaphors in this section. So the clouds being the dust of his feet to show that he is high up in the heavens. And, and as we know, clouds certainly are way up there. And so God is even higher than the clouds or anything like that. And certainly the holiness. So control over nature. I, want to, I just want to remind you of this. Exodus and the ten plagues, if you will. There was water turning to blood. There was frogs, lice, flies, livestock, pestilence, boils, hail, locusts, three days of darkness, and then ultimately the killing of the firstborn children in that regard. And then Jonah too. You saw the storm. You saw Jonah in the belly of a fish. You saw the plant being grown and taken out by a worm. You saw scorching wind. So you see all of these things. So none of this is, is new. It's not a new concept in any way, but it's just how we deal with it and how we respect God in this. And he's always in control. So when he talks about Bashan and Carmel and Lebanon, Bashan was famed for its pastures, its big green growing pastures, Carmel for its cornfields and its vineyards, and then Lebanon for its forests back in the day. In, in historical times. There is nothing in this world so blooming that God cannot change it when he is ultimately angry. And you see also in this section, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. So this isn't just nature. This is the world and everyone and everything that dwells in it. So... He kind of finishes up this section in this control over nature with a couple of rhetorical questions in a sense. Who can stand before his indignation and who can endure the heat of his anger? The, the survey says no one. No one can. That's the point that he's trying to make is that God is great in power. He has and will continue to use nature to get our attention and, and our and people's attentions. And so it makes you wonder too, what about last Monday? with all the crazy tornadoes we had here that touched down. I don't know if some of us turned to God in that moment. I would hope some of us did. It's like, Lord, like help us, protect us. I really don't want to get hit by a tornado right now. That would be terrible. Protect all of our friends and family. Or if we just rely on our self in that moment. Do we, again, are we giving ourselves the credit? Like, I just am going to go basement, which is the reasonable, responsible thing, but I've not had any kind of conversation with my Lord about this in that regard. God wants this intimate relationship with us. He's always wanted this intimate relationship with us. He, he, he hears our pleas and our cries, 
as the song said. And so this is dealing with a whole nation of, of people who have been oppressed and are, and are dealing with struggles. And the Lord has heard their cries in that regard. So even in the small moments of crazy tornadoes landing all around us, like Sycamore, Kirkland, uh, Hampshire, I think, like all around, but no one that I know, and, and, and it was even so close to our house that one of our neighbors was able to take a real close picture, but praise the Lord, nothing happened. And so we'll give God the glory that, that we're still okay. Most people will argue that oh, this, is, this, is, this is me, it's just random, it's nature. It's like, no, this is God's world. He's created it from top to bottom. He controls every aspect of it. He can, he can work within it because he is great in power. So praise the Lord for all of that. And so tell me, is there a fear in you because God controls nature? Or is there perhaps a comfort that can grow in you because indeed God controls nature and he is in control of all those things? Those are my rhetorical questions for you. Survey says, hopefully, yes, there can be comfort in, in who we are and what we do because our Lord is in control of all of these aspects of life. And you, again, while we're just going through this small book and while certainly it's just said in you know, those couple little verses, all of history again, like all of God's working. You know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you think about everything that's happened up until this point that we know about, and that we indeed are living in the end times, because once Jesus died and rose again at the right hand of God, we are literally just waiting for Jesus to come back to put an end to everything. It's not that it's this prophetic things that we may or may not see that make us go, ooh, or you know, we're looking for all these ways that we're going to to see the end times. No, we're just waiting ultimately for Jesus to come back. It's been 2,000 years, but we're still waiting for Jesus to come back this final time because that will be the end of it all. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth as is promised to us. So the Lord indeed is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. So you see how it ended there in, in verse 6, how who can withstand his indignation? Who can, who can stand against his burning flame? And no one can, of course. But for God's people, the Lord is good. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he personally knows those who take refuge in him. And so see that. See that comfort again in, in that phrase. And understand that history is not under the control of nations, godless nations, or fortuitous events, or random chance, it is under the control of the Creator. Things have and are playing out ultimately as God would have them play out. Yes, there are some you know, twists and turns, because free will, I do believe, exists. Like You get to choose the red or the green, or the blue and the purple. But when it comes to salvation, I feel like God's pursuing ultimately is what, what drives you to him in that regard. So we still have that. But think about this too in light of us now. Back then, of course, God was a refuge and strength. He wanted that with Israel. Nowadays, our refuge and strength is in Christ. 
Everything of our merit and worth is in Christ. It is not based on our works. It was based on Christ's works. So again, you go back and you kind of translate this. Repent from your nasty, evil ways and the faith. And that's how it's always been. God wants that relationship. He wants you to trust him, to believe in him. And that's why he sent his son as evidence and witness that he is in control. He's got the plan. He is the God of salvation. And that we can take our refuge in Christ. Because if we weren't in Christ standing at the judgment seat, then it's based on me, myself and I. And when I go to that holy creator, in that moment, and he'll be like, why should I let you in heaven? Well, I wasn't that bad, right? Isn't that the battle cry of those who are fallen? You know, because you have to understand that there is that bad within all of us. There's certainly all that. So it's not based on my works. It's based on Jesus's works. That's why we can rest. That's why we can have fun. That's why... Sorry, I got distracted. There's like 20 bikers just going by. You know, it just happens. That's part of the fun of being outside. I was kind of like, oh, what a beautiful day to ride a bike. But praise the Lord that it's a beautiful day to ride a bike. I think that's kind of the, the, the point overall here is that like, God has created an amazing world with amazing opportunities and amazing blessings. And no one is more blessed in this world than those who know Christ. Because he is ultimately the every, he's our refuge, he's our strength, he is our stronghold for the days of trouble. And so, you know, the Father is three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the triune God. So when speaking of one, we're speaking collectively as well. Because, again, you know, whether it's the Old Testament and, and seeing his nation that way, but again, it's all comfort. It's all comfort. So to go on with that. And so, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of his adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Like, dang. That's, that's the reality, unfortunately, of where everything is. And so when I see that overflowing flood, two things kind of pop in my head, just knowing God's redemptive history as well. I think of Noah, and I think of the, the world flood, when the world was full of wickedness and God could not you know, stand the wickedness of man anymore. But he saw something special in Noah and, and his family members and, you know, saved the world, continued it moving on in, in that direction. And then also I think of the Red Sea when God saved his people from Egypt again. In that Red Sea moment, his people crossed safely between two gigantic walls of water. And then as soon as Egypt started coming through, he moved the walls back down and they were swallowed up in that. And so this is seriously metaphor still too. And as we read more in this book, God is sending an overflowing flood of people in the form of another nation, Babylon, to take care of this problem. So God is, is using people to do that. And when we get to the next point, you'll see that God has punished Israel using Assyria. In, in the first point, too. So it's like, oh, man, like, dang. So he pursues his enemies into darkness, and that's exactly what enemies of God want. They want to be away from God, and God's going to give them exactly what they want, as if this is, you know, certainly it's a, it's a punishment for sin, but at the same time, if you've never wanted God in your life, don't worry about it. You'll have an eternity apart from him, and then you'll be like, I really wish I had God in my life. 
in that moment. And, and so, scary stuff. But the rise and fall, ultimately, of nations in history are a natural event, okay? It's not supernatural like Sodom was. Like in the early stages, Sodom was a supernatural event. God cast fire down upon the city. But in the course of history, with all the powerful nations, it's been nation against nation. And you know what? What is God using other than their own sinful temptations? You know, in, in Isaiah, one of the most prominent ones, and I can't remember the king's name. I want to say it's Hezekiah. But he invited in the emissaries from another nation. And he's like, hey, look what we got here. And look what we got here. And look at we got this. And man, we are great kingdom. I hope you guys will be my friends. Like we've got lots of stuff. But it was that temptation of showing those emissaries all the stuff that Israel had that led that nation ultimately because of their own sinful nature, because of their own desire and their drive to, you know, attain more wealth and stuff, which very much exists today. It's all about stuff, our consumerism in a sense. And so to see that, like, that's very easy to use another nation or another country in that regard. So I don't think God even has to like lift a finger. <laughs> like he literally just has to show, you know, what the, what the prizes are or whatnot. And so finishing it up though, who or what do you plot against the Lord? He'll make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. And then for like their entangled thorns. Uh, ultimately, this plot against God's people is the same as a plot against God. And Sennacherib, the the leader. The king of Assyria at the time was planning another attack on Israel, which is where this is going. So does God take revenge for his people? Yes. God takes Is he slow to anger, though? Yes. Because he wants people to repent and believe. God doesn't have this heart of, I need to destroy people. But he does what's necessary. And tell me, is God just whether he saves or destroys? And the answer is yes. He's just in both regards. If God was to wipe out the entire planet now, he would be just. If God was to have mercy on people because they don't know their right hand from their left and they're slaves to sin and don't understand it, yes. He is just in both of those instances. And so God using nations to attack other nations and to conquer other nations or to, you know, discipline his own nation of Israel, if you will. All of these things are just. And so how does knowing God is in control bring you comfort in our current national climate? Well, ultimately, the fact that God is in control and that things are happening. They're not out of his sight. They're not loosey-goosey. He's not a part-time God part-time, you know, McDonald's employee. He's not, you know, a lot of different things. He's in control, and he's always in control. He's in control over, you know, the nations, how government is. He's in control over nature. He is great in power to do so, and praise the Lord that he's slow to anger, and he maintains his steadfast love, and that he forgives and has mercy. There's so many beautiful blessings for, for all of these things, but God's in control. And he's in control over evil. Now this last point. God's sovereignty, certain. It's kind of the, the overarching everything that I've been telling you. Is that from you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. And, and 
God speaking to Nineveh in that moment, and it's worthless to plot against God. You're never going to, to stop him in that sense. And so even though many people, you know, ignore him or try to ignore him today, like the, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess someday that Jesus is Lord. And we can take refuge in that too because it's the truth that every human being on this planet, whether or not you live in Christ now or you live apart from Christ, on that final day, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord and they shall know God. They shall know their creator in that moment. There will most likely be lots of tears and weeping and, and everything else when coming to that realization uh, as those who God has given the ability to repent have experienced in their walk as they, again, turn from their wickedness into understanding that, oh my goodness, like, he is real. He is in control. He is the Lord of all. And that none of this that is going on in this world is an accident by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, if anything, like especially in our cultural climate, it is very informative. It is very telling of the sin struggles and the problems that we face as communities, as states, as nations, and as a world together. It has been very informative, if you will. Edifying, even. So, Verse 11, you see that spoken to Nineveh. Now he speaks to Israel again. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, meaning Assyria, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And that's always hard. That's always hard for people to grasp. Nobody wants to admit it. Nobody wants to deal with it. But it is true that he disciplines those that he loves. And that's exactly what has happened with Israel. They have constantly wandered away. They've started worshiping many gods. They've wanted to be like many other different nations. They're not standing in, in who God has created them to be. They're being influenced by the culture of the world. And God's bringing them back. God's bringing them back to them. And unfortunately, it takes a storm sometimes to bring us back to God. And, and that's just hard. But... So is dealing with the sin of life. Like that is that is difficult too. So freedom from oppression ultimately is, is what he's speaking of. And I want you to know God's heart is always for the downtrodden. The reason he can avenge is because his people are downtrodden. The reason he holds this wrath is because sin has held his people captive. It has oppressed them. It has held them down if you will. Just like a nation of Assyria has held the nation of Israel down in this time. So God's heart will always be for the oppressed, for the orphan and the widow. So God will naturally be against the arrogant and those who oppress the, the downtrodden, if you will. And that's exactly what we see in this. And so we have to deal with that. We have to grasp this, that though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. How many times has that happened in our lives? How many times can we think about that? But now he has broke the yoke off of them and burst their bonds apart. So that's freedom from slavery, freedom from oppression, freedom from all of these things that Israel has endured on behalf of God enticing Assyria with Israel, if you will. And then verse 14 speaks to Nineveh again. The Lord has 
given commandment about you, no more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. Uh, long story short in that one, just to, just to keep it, is that, uh, yeah, they're going to be cut off. But they won't be anymore. Ever. Assyria is going down. But I want to tell you about the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of our, our Lord and our Savior in this moment, too, because it's very powerful. It's in another book. It's in Isaiah the prophet Isaiah, who certainly speaks of the coming Messiah. And there's many servant songs. But one thing that he talks about uh, predominantly for about 10 different chapters, it's filled with oracles, but at the end of, of most of the oracles, a remnant of you will be saved. So what happened during Jonah's time, some people were most likely saved. They came to repentance. They came to know the living God. They came to know Yahweh in this. So Assyria had people who were saved, just the same as Israel has had people that are saved. Babylon is spoken of in Isaiah. Egypt is spoken of in Isaiah. Many, many, many other countries and nations are spoken of in Isaiah. And if you go back to Abraham, and you go back to Genesis, God promises Abraham descendants as numerous as the stars. And so from all of these nations, there are some people that are saved, that are God's people that will be with him for all eternity, which is praise the Lord. So when we do get to heaven, and this is kind of an exciting thing to think about, is that all the major you know, leaders throughout history, you got Assyria, you got Babylon, you got Egypt, you got Israel, you got Rome, you got like the list goes on and on of all these. There will be people from each and every one of these nations that God has saved. Read Isaiah uh, chapter 10 through like 21, and you'll get kind of a good grasp of what I'm talking about here. But this is just another avenue of praising the Lord. So even though Assyria is going to be cut off and wiped off as a nation because of their wickedness, and, and, and you, you know, when we get to chapter 2, we'll cross this bridge again. But men, women, children. Gone. All of them. Gone. The Assyrians won't be anymore. So like, how does God do this? How does he do it? Again, we'll get to that. And this book dangerously creates way more questions than it gives answers, which kind of leads you down different paths. I'm sure a lot of you have questions even right now, but there's still so much more throughout God's redemptive history that we have to like bring in to these minor prophets too, because it's just one small time frame. So this is roughly 663 to 612. Who knows specifically when, but the destruction of Thebes, one nation, Egypt, the destruction of Assyria, another nation, you know, like it's, it's fascinating that, that it keeps happening between that. And it makes you kind of want to look at all of history as well and see exactly what happened. But verse 14 you saw that again, that they were speaking to Nineveh and that. And then verse 15, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He's utterly cut off. So this is a big gospel message too, of course. 
may have seen it, you may have heard it. Um, but more specifically, too, there's always the now and then there's the future implications when it comes to prophecy as well. So the now very much is, is that Assyria actually dwelt in the mountains around Israel at the time, but they were withdrawing. God was making them withdraw because they're not going to be able to attack Israel again, or Judah, if you will. And so this is good news. This is comfort to Judah and Israel and God's people. And then the feet of him who brings good news, good news is gospel. <laughs> like that's what it means ultimately, and who publishes peace. And so we see that. And, and Israel was looking for the Messiah. Israel was looking for like a great conqueror to take over all of the nations. But here's what we miss big time is that we're worried about all these nationalities. We're worried about peace between nations. Can I tell you that's never going to happen? And the peace that God brought was peace with him because we are God's enemies and we were and have been and many people still are today God's enemies. But because of what Jesus has done, because God has extended that olive branch to each and every, you know, most human beings on the planet, to, to the best of my knowledge. I'm not God, so I don't know if he's reached out. But I know God pursues people. But I know sin is evil, awful wickedness. And I know that man loves the darkness more than they love the light. So ultimately, in, in all this, the peace that God brings is peace with him. And that's the most important peace that we can have. That's the peace and the comfort, if you will, that allows suffering to actually have meaning and purpose behind it. As we're continued to be transformed into Christ-likeness, we do have to understand how much Christ has suffered more too. And so there's no shortage of that. There's no shortage of suffering in this world or, or this life or anything like that. But there's also, but I would say that there's probably a shortage of comfort because there's not a lot of people comforting a lot of other people. But our Lord is that God of comfort. Nahum's name means it. It's, it's comfort and vengeance. For those who are oppressed, for those who are slaves to their own sin, there can be comfort. There can be peace because of what God has done in all of these instances and situations. So there's still, you know, so much more. But I know I've talked quite a bit. And, and, it, and it is very heady, unfortunately. But it's good for us in that sense, too, because there needs to be that comfort and that peace. You need to see God's sovereignty. You need to know that, you know, that this whole good thing or bad things happen to good people. You need to know that there's no such thing as a good person, ultimately. And if you say, I'm not that bad, well, then, then you don't understand the atrocity of sin and how even hating someone is murdering them, you know, defaming them and defaming God. And so Assyria did that to Israel, now God's avenging because he's jealous, because he has a burning passion for his people, because he loves them and he's loyal to them and he cares about them. So if, if you become oppressed, those people that are oppressing you, I would not envy in the slightest because this same type of thing will happen today, not on a national scale like this, but know, smaller skills for us as individuals and as people, because God is for us. And if God is for us, who can stand against us or him? <laughs> Nobody. Nobody can. So praise the Lord for that. So just God being in control brings us a ton of comfort. Control of salvation, 
control of life, control of death, control of events. And the good news, of course, of the gospel is that he brought us peace and that it's based on God's accomplished works, not on our individual worth or merit, as so many quote-unquote religions say to do today. So, dear Heavenly Father, you are amazing. You are in control. You are the God that you know, can bust mountains, explode volcanoes, create tornadoes, whirlwinds, hurricanes. You know, we look at the world today, Lord, and we see that, you know, the oceans are rising. But how amazing are you that you told the oceans where to stop? You told them this is as far as you can go on the land, and that's it. And then, Lord, even now we see because of our, our sins, because of our, our wanton way that the ice caps are melting, and so now the seas are rising in, in a different spot. But still, Lord, you hold them back. And this destruction that we bring on ourselves, whether it be from, you know, wrath because we have turned away from you, or it's for our good, in essence, we know that it's good. And, and we see that in, in the book of Jonah, and we see that in Egypt, that with all that you've done with those communities and with working with them, with Jonah, there wasn't, it was always good. It was still always good. Might have been hard times, but it was good for him to come back to you in that regard. And Egypt had to know that you were all-powerful, that you are the creator God, and that they were oppressing your people. And so we see that, and we see the contrast of that. And so, Lord, there is a lot going on in the world today. Just grant us wisdom to endure, to be able to walk soundly and safely amidst this uh, cultural warfare that we're all experiencing. And, And, Lord... I know that you're in control, and I know that you're sovereign, and I know that you give us comfort. But, Lord, we need your light to guide our paths just the same. We need to turn back to you on a daily basis. We need to think before we leap to understand that not, not necessarily what would you do, Jesus, but how can we best follow you? What is the righteous path? What is the, what is the hard path? What is the sinful path? So... Lord, there's a lot of questions, a lot of heart motives, a lot of goodness. We know that you are awesome, and we give you all the praise and thanksgiving. And we thank you, Jesus, that you cared enough about us, that your steadfast love continued to pursue us, to call us to be a part of your kingdom and your people as your church today. And so while this is not popular, Lord, in our eyes, you you are the most popular person I think we've ever seen popular person in our minds and we live to glorify you because we know that you're good and that you care for us so lord keep bolstering all of these things within us it's in your name we pray amen